0: Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This podcast is brought to you by eHarmony, the dating app to find someone you can be yourself with. Why doesn't eHarmony allow copy and paste in first messages? Because you are unique and your conversations should reflect that eHarmony wants you to find someone who will get you. How are you going to know who gets you? If people send you the same generic conversation starters, they message everyone else. Conversations that actually help you get to know each other. Imagine that. Get who gets you on eHarmony. Sign up today.
1: There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care.
0: comedy art and sometimes rock and roll let's do a public opinion poll raise your hand if you love creative control because when vish is unleashed well you- oh sorry i didn't see you there i was just working on a tribute song to my favorite podcast creative control with vish Khanna. My name is Matthias, and I play in a band called The Burning Hell, but more importantly, I support creative control on Patreon, and I think you should too. Quality long-form arts journalism is like a magical talking unicorn. It definitely exists, but it can be really hard to find. Fortunately for us, Vish makes it easy with hundreds of funny, thought-provoking, well-researched and engaging interviews with artists from all over the world. Your flexible monthly donation on Patreon will get you plenty of special exclusive treats and help Vish keep his podcast well-fed and cared for properly the way a magical unicorn deserves.
3: To make your flexible monthly donation to Creative Control, please visit patreon.com slash Control today.
2: Bob Nastanovich, Steve West, and Jesper Eklo are all musicians who call, or have at one time called, the United States of America, home. Nastanovich and West are childhood friends who are members of the band Pavement, and each also collaborated with the late David Berman and his band, Silver Jews. Eklo once worked for Matador Records, who have issued all of Pavement's albums, and he also plays in the excellent band Endless Boogie. Over the past 20 years, Eklo has played a lead role in producing expanded, revelatory reissues of Pavement albums, and with more context provided by Mistanovich and West, he's done it again with Terror Twilight, Farewell Horizontal, which is available as a 4-LP box, a 2-CD box, and on digital formats, and uh, it consists of 45 songs, 28 of which are previously unreleased, and spans 2 hours and 43 minutes a music. The set is out April 8th, 2022 on Matador Records, and with the band reforming for a tour later this year, it seemed like a good time to connect with Bob, Steve, Jesper, and almost Mark Eibold, who is Pavement's bass player, to discuss things like America, how great Mark Eibold really is. Working with uh, producer Nigel Godrich and why Terror Twilight was maybe the most different Pavement album of them all when it came out as their final record in 1999. Whether or not Stephen Malcolmus made as many demos for previous Pavement albums and where in the world they might be, Malcolmus' indifferent genius, Spiral Stairs, and Pitchfork. How working with David Berman on 1998's American Water by Silver Jew's may have influenced Malcolmus' writing on Terror Twilight and the LaGuardia Sessions tapes they recorded together with Steve West, whether or not Bob's dad actually tackled Jim Brown in a college football game, why Pavement is back, other future plans, and much more. A part of the Entertainment One network with the support of listeners like you who follow and subscribe to this podcast and spread the word about it and make flexible monthly donations at patreon.com slash Control. With additional support from Blackbird Music, a well stocked record store with locations in Edmonton and Calgary, Alberta, and friendly staff who will happily help you with all your needs there. If you want to learn more about them, you can go to their website, blackbird.ca. Plus, in kind support from Pizza Trocadero, The Bookshelf, and Planet Bean Coffee, respectively, in Guelph, Ontario, and Granddad's Donuts in Hamilton, Ontario. This is episode 677 of Creative Control, featuring the lovely and talented Bob Nistanovich, Steve West, and Jesper Eklo, all talking about pavement with your host, me, Vishkana.
0: now, develop the coast, and raise the sight lines. The ocean's moving out, and someday.
2: bob how's it going
1: i'm doing great bob nissanovich from the rock band pavement always good to see you and hear you vish
2: <laughs> nice to see you bob it's always a pleasure thank you right off the top thanks for helping me facilitate this uh, discussion it means a lot
1: my pleasure i think it was important for me to see um, some of my bandmates and hear Jesper before i begin rehearsing for the uh, upcoming tour yes Other, otherwise i'll feel like a guy that just kind of whatever it'll it help me reacquaint myself with the mindset
2: <laughs> yeah no I appreciate that I appreciate being a social convener of my own no it's nice mm. thank you so much Bob uh, Steve, Steve West are you there yes I am nice to see you Hi. again how are you
4: I'm doing alright <laughs> it's Steve West of the Rock Band Pavement Thanks <laughs> to be here Avish uh,
2: I like that. This is all a, right. It's like a border crossing. You're identifying yourself by your job, <laughs> vocational designation. That's great. I neglected to ask Bob this, and I will in a moment. Steve, where in the world are you?
4: I'm at home in Virginia, in uh, Cars Creek, Virginia.
2: Oh, nice. How are, how's your day shaping up in Cars Creek, Virginia?
4: Um, it's not raining now, so when we're done with this, I'm going to go to work.
2: Okay. Awesome. Good. And hey, that'll be
4: good. That'll be good. I'm looking forward to that.
2: Nice. Bob, I'm going to shoot back to you here. Where in the world are you?
1: I'm in a um, very, very small shed um, where I live in Paris, Tennessee. Um, I'm about Paris. T- yeah oh. two hours from Nashville and two hours from Memphis, okay. about 15 miles from the Kentucky-Tennessee border. I'm surrounded by Nazi militia groups. Ouch.
2: Yikes. Uh, that doesn't sound good. Good. How are you faring with that?
1: It sounds uh, the like anywhere America to me.
2: Yeah, that's true. Yeah, your country <laughs> is uh, not in great shape, and I, I'm i sorry. So Canada, it's not your fault. It's not your fault. <laughs> it's not so great up here either, if I might say, but not quite. Well, here here those things exist, we just don't always see them. And then everyone acts surprised when they show up, even though a bunch of us are like, yeah, no, that's here. Had- it. Now, you
1: don't have much war machinery floating around your stores up there.
2: No, that's true. You can't <laughs> that's the big go,
1: difference, my friend. Yeah, that's
2: that yeah, is true. That's the key that is true. Yeah, that's true. Well, anyway, I'm I'm glad to know where you are. And finally, uh, Jesper, are you there? I'm here. How's it going? Pretty good. Did you want to uh, identify yourself the way the other fellas did, like a uh, customs official?
3: <laughs> yeah, I guess I'm you know former lieutenant colonel of Maddo Records, but I haven't been there since I don't know 2009. Oh. but um I was in matador for maybe 17 years or so and worked in the production and art department and stuff and worked with pavement a lot so every album I helped you know kind of assemble and stuff like that so every time there's a matador reissue of, what, of of this style they call me up because I know where the tapes are and what's on them
2: Nice. That's amazing. So, you haven't been a Matador for a while. You do also, no. do you currently still play in a great band called Endless Boogie? I do. Nice. I, do. I was I was listening to, uh, I, I feel like I can't say this word. Is it admonitions?
3: Admonitions,
2: indeed. Admonitions. I've never come across... I'm an English major. I don't know what that word... I've never... That's like a Stephen Malcolmist word. Where did come you... On, <laughs> come on. No, admonish, I've heard the word. To I, might, I might
3: need, to, I might need to, a, to admonish you for that. that yeah, exactly I, heard ad- I was going to say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I,
2: I've, heard ad, I've heard admonish. I just have never used admonitions. I don't feel like in my life, the word admonitions has come out of my mouth until just now. Do you know what I'm
3: saying? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah, let Maybe me be the... the yeah, I'm Swedish, so you know, I just you know grew up reading dictionaries. So maybe I have a lot of words in my head that I no, shouldn't have. You know, I yeah. To it get...
1: basically, um, basically, endless boogie exists to uh, teach English majors how to speak the language.
3: <laughs> <laughs> this is true. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so
2: that that's a great record. Came out in 2021, right? I believe. Indeed. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, Very
3: nice. uh, yeah we're going to try to go to Australia and tour a little bit on it in oh, in yeah. April. Nice. That's great. And uh, who knows? Maybe we get allowed to play one show with pavement. Who knows? Yeah. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah.
2: I feel like we just got a scoop. That might just happen. Yeah. That's great. There That's you amazing. Go. Now, uh, we should say that we had invited Mark Eibold to join us, uh, and Mark is on the road. He may... but Bob has money that he's not going to call in, but he in may... Order,
1: in order for him to... Um... And get out of doing this, he just decided to hop in the
3: car with the family and start driving around. <laughs> <laughs> he did one <laughs> week after he got his driver's license. So know, <laughs> yeah, dead yeah, dead. yeah, yeah, Exactly.
2: <laughs> Can't make it. Yeah, it's too bad. We, I, he, his name came up quite a bit because uh, I just had uh, Lee Ronaldo and Steve Shelley on uh, this show a couple weeks ago, and we were talking about uh, uh, his Mark's time in Sonic Youth, and they described Mark as a great vibologist that helped the band as a vibologist would you bob was mark a is mark a vibologist in pavement
1: yeah i mean if he's he's got you know he's got a very underrated sense of humor um he's a very unique individual basically you know he's one of my favorite people but uh you know like i said he's he's a law unto himself i've really never known anybody like him at all so his, his story is very unique everything about him is very unique so i think um and he also commands a lot of respect I mean since Gary quit the band he's he's the sort of, sort of the oldest and wise, wisest member of payment in some regard I see. Um, hmm. but uh, yeah no very very um, highly entertaining guy and and uh, you know a bit on the moody side but it isn't everybody
3: <laughs> sure yeah but when he's excited he gets super excited I mean he fantastic can, you know, He's great to tour with because, you know, he, he'll he know some great food spot in every town. Oh, yeah. Legendary and be, for and that. And he'll be, you know, he might have been there before, but he'll, you know, and he'll take you there. But he will be so excited that he's, that you're also, also experiencing Absolutely. it. I Absolutely. Mean, there's, there's a lot of people out there who are just like, oh, yeah, I know the cool shit, but I won't tell you.
2: Right. No, not he, him, not him. Know, no, he, no, li- no. he
3: lives to share, you know, like, no, and no, I, yeah. he's the first member of Pavement that I ever knew. Back in 91 or something like that. Mm-hmm. And he was, you know, he had just been called into the band, I think. And he was just like, he was excited as a kid. You know, it's like awesome. This oh, life yeah. affirming guy, you know. But mm-hmm. he's on, there's no one like him.
1: And then in in pavement, he was an, an incredible team player. He probably, compared to the rest of us, uh, you know, got along and had individual relationships with the other four members, which I can't really say that. I had. Hmm. I mean, uh, you know, I'm I'm partial to some over others and I spent a lot of time with, with other people, you know. Yeah. I'm quite frank that way. I mean, I've known Steve since I was thirteen, so he's like, you know, he's almost like a relative of mine. Yeah. Um uh, then, then Malcolmus I've known since I was eighteen. So yeah, no, So it's like uh Eibold really was a uh, facilitator and very important because he he probably wanted pavement to succeed On stage and off, but especially on stage during live concerts, he probably wanted us to succeed more than anybody in the building, including, you know, the audience or the other people in the band or the crew or whatever. I mean, he just, you know, he's very determined to make things um, work properly.
3: Yeah. That's crucial, you know? Yeah.
1: Yeah, very crucial. Especially when you're in a band with Malcolmus, who, like, sometimes you can't tell if he gives a shit or not, you know? Yeah. I, mean,
3: I was going to say that, but I, you know, left it unsaid. We, uh, leave it to me. Leave it to Bob. Leave
1: it to
2: Bob. Uh, Steve, what, Steve, you, Steve you're, you're in a rhythm section with Eyebold, and you've played with other people. Is it a particularly unique experience playing with Mark and, and the way he approaches, uh, bass if you will
4: yeah um mark was always there at the center of the stage kind of like a beaming light that the the audience uh, definitely could pick up on his positive enthusiasm um in the band and like bob was saying if some other members were kind of down you never got that from mark he was always giving it everything he could do and was always a team player yeah. It was a pleasure to play with him.
2: Yeah, I like yeah. that Mark's not here, and it's become a memorial episode for Mark Eibel. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, I didn't mean to do that. I just I miss him. Maybe he'll join us, and then we can take everything back. We'll just rib him endlessly. Yeah. yeah.
3: <laughs> but it's like the most unfair thing that ever happened in the uh, hipster scene in New York City was when he when that cartoon pavement boy came out. Oh, it, was it was the most crazy. unfair. Oh. Do you ever hear it about that? Dis- oh, I don't know. I that forgot is. about that. I don't. Yeah, I'll yeah. tell
1: these. Um, yeah, it was, it was there's a, a fanzine run by this woman called Gail O'Hara called. Who's uh, great. Yeah, she's good. And the fanzine was called Chick Factor. And, and um, one of her friends was a very good cartoonist, like as a drawer and stuff. He was a cartoonist. And he decided to make a cartoon parodying Mark as a guy that went around to all the shows and record stores and leeched and tried to get free shit and was just like an embarrassing member of the scene. And it was completely unfair because Mark's the opposite of that. He's the kind of guy that he could know a band for a decade and still pay to get into their shows kind of guy. Yeah. Refused to be on guest list, pay full price for everything. And like, and we were actually on tour when we saw the first one. It must have been '92. And they, I mean, he was he he was distraught. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was uh, I mean, it was a it was bad. I mean, it was it was as upset as I've ever seen him over something that is not life altering, like uh, you know somebody getting sick or dying. No. I mean, he was it was a real blow to him. And, and um, you know, thankfully, I think there. If I had to guess, maybe about ten different editions of that magazine with that cartoon in there but it was just like there were people like that all over manhattan and elsewhere that yeah, you know, and there were
3: horrible people and he was the complete opposite of him yeah, exactly. I, I never met was, a more generous person on yeah. the scene you know? I
1: mean, yeah no he was just an amazing part of the scene it was just, they basically used a good i think probably the reason why they used mark was you know he's probably fun to draw and he was at a lot of things. I mean, he was a part of, I mean, you would see, if I, if I went to seven shows a month, I'd see Mark at five. I mean, he was, he was at, uh, he was, he was everywhere. I mean, you know, yeah. so. Um,
2: well, and as Steve, um, as Steve just said, like, I've been watching a ton of live footage of the band. I rewatched uh, Slow Sentry over the weekend and uh, he really uh, does radiate joy, Mark, uh, when he's on stage, like no matter what's going on, uh, I can just—that's
1: when he's facing the crowd. Yeah, when he's facing me and West, he winces a lot.
2: Oh, really? Because <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I I love him. I hope he joins us. If he does, listeners, don't be startled. We may have an, it's not an intruder. It's Mark Eibold, hopefully joining us now. Uh, I want to commend you all uh, on this uh, Terra Twilight uh, Farewell Horizontal release. Uh, it's one, Thank you. it's wonderful. It's another wonderful, uh, deluxe edition of a pavement record that has, uh, made me rethink the album and, uh, reacquaint myself with a new version of the album, which we'll get into in a bit. I want to actually start with Jesper. You, you kind of explained your role at Matador and, and your role with pavement records in this particular context. What was your overall role in creating or helping to create this, uh, new deluxe edition?
3: Yeah, had absolutely zero to do with the original album, which kind of, you know, pavement did on their own mm-hmm. and then kind of presented a finished product to Matador basically, which kind of what they usually did. And I don't think I don't think even a, a Matador person ever visited the recordings or anything like that. It was it was it was kind of Matador style, I guess. But when yeah, this reissue first was talked about at least ten years ago, because I remember we did we mastered the original tapes, maybe in 2011 or something. And we had some bonus material, but we didn't really have enough for like a similar release like the you know Brighten the Corners and Hook Rain, whatever. So then it was kind of put on ice for a while. And then you know, people kept asking why this thing is not going to be reissued. And I guess eventually, maybe three years ago or so, Matter's like, well, we gotta do it, box set, we gotta figure out, we gotta find some more cool stuff, you know, blah, blah, blah. So I went looking at a lot of dat tapes and cassette tapes and whatever and got in touch with Mark and Steven to get some of these rehearsal tapes, you know, the uh <laughs> you know, which, you know, a lot of that stuff is great and cool, but you might have bad vocals or no vocals at all or they were kind of sloppy first takes, you know, first time you ever played something. So I just had to like, you know, cypher through all that. And I came up with what I thought was, you know, great collection of stuff. And from that point on, Malcolm has kind of put his foot down on a certain things, you know, that like songs that might later be- have become Malcolm's solo songs. He didn't really want us to touch those, but they were really embryonic songs anyway. Right. And I, I don't know. In, in the end, I think we came up with a really good, you know, it's a t- pretty tight grouping, as they say, of jams, you know. No, absolutely. Uh, yeah. I mean, it just spans over. There's, you know, the, the the best stuff we got that we didn't have 10 years ago, when we tried to do this the first time, was Malcolm's own home demo recordings, for most, most of the songs, which he just couldn't really be bothered to find 10 years ago. Huh. But you know, after, after I kept rotting him, but eventually he just you know, like okay, I have this tape, I'll send it to you, you know, it, <laughs> just to get me to shut it up. It strikes
2: it strikes yeah. me, and I'm I'm using my memory. I most I have those. I'm looking at my uh, record collection here, and I have those uh, deluxe editions that appear on vinyl anyway. But um, it strikes me um, that I don't recall a collection like this with this many demos, and I don't know if it. I I, I and they're slick. They sound like slick. Home demos. So I-,
3: I think some of that has to do with you know the fact that for a lot of the other albums there were a lot of Peel or maybe BBC Peel sessions that were done and other a lot of other B sides and stuff like that. or was studio recordings that were never used before. Here we didn't have much of that, right? You know, we had the album and maybe one other song, and then we had a little live stuff, but we didn't really have it. There was no other extracurricular stuff. Huh. So that's when we. I guess that's why we we weren't looking for like there was original demos but i think i think each album has original demos that probably Steve's I'm trying own. to say like is that right yeah, I, not, I just maybe, don't remember they might this. Not have been the release but i'm saying that steve, this is kind of Steve's yeah. MO he would record demos
2: oh okay so this stands to reason then like steve in your memory in, in any uh, with every record did steven bring demos to you or pre- or present demos to you and And then you'd go off of those. Because I remember, Bob, when we were talking about Brighton, the corners, there was that in-between period between Wowie Zowie and Brighton where you guys would play shows. And I think, Bob, you'd suggested, Stephen, would be like getting kind of bored with the set list and just say, I got a new one and it would be stereo or something like he would just from the start really from the
1: yeah, start. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And, and see, and in my mind that meant that maybe is how he presented music to you guys that he'd come up with. But Steve, do you remember, did do you have any sense memory of Steven bringing you demos for other records uh, mm-hmm. before terror twilight?
4: No, not at all. I mean, this, terrible twilight i don't even think i ever heard those until yesterday or the day before <laughs> Right. <laughs> maybe i did I, I don't remember uh it was like maybe Ibold had one and he was supposed to give it to me there was one on one of the albums where i remember actually going trying to you know listen to and practice to and um i was like wow i i can't follow this right now <laughs> and then um early on when he and i both lived in uh brooklyn He'd come over to my loft and and we'd hash out and go through these songs and, and and that gave me a heads up uh before recording but um i he probably did do them but i don't I can't remember getting the one. <laughs>
2: <laughs> that though no, that's fine Bob similar question like do, did Steven often bring demos to pavement uh practices or 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 email them to you or whatnot
1: um I would have been the last person to <laughs> need them or know about them <laughs> <laughs> The uh, the uh, the thing, going back to what Jesper was saying Unlike the previous recordings Especially Wowie Zowie and Bright in the Corners Is that there just simply was far less material uh, Really sort of critically at the start of recording Terror Twilight It was almost with the exception of the song The Hex That was the only song that I was the least bit familiar with Of what ended up on the original yeah. record um, Whereas with Wowie Zowie we probably had 30 ideas um that was the band that was the band that made that record was the most cohesive era of pavement and we were spending the most time together and it was kind of like it was halftime of our careers and it kind of felt like we'd actually become a, a real band for the first time instead of totally a project and um you know the same can be said all the way through bright in the corners i don't know what happened after Bright in the Corners? It, to me, it kind of felt like the same sort of tour wind down and then make future plans to record again type feeling that I'd had for the, you know, previous albums. It could be that, that we were just out of ideas or even just as likely it could be that Malchmas was, you know, entertaining thoughts in his own head of, of sort of, you know, general frustration about having to wrap up these tours have everybody go their own way and then have to have to create music and essentially part of the reason why he probably made demos was probably because he had to teach us the songs. Right. So he was doing all the homework and he was kind of completely orchestrating pavement while, you know, the rest of us were doing, you know, what we did when we weren't in the band full time.
2: Yeah. 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 Jasper, as someone here who seems to be maybe the most familiar with the Pavement archives, this is sort of revelatory for me. Does this suggest that there are demos we haven't heard from other records? Like you said, you had to kind of pad this release with materials. That's, I think, why we're seeing, again, to my memory... And I'm sorry, I don't have them all in front of me. I don't remember this many demos on the previous editions as we've discussed because there was other stuff. There was other B-sides and other material. But does it stand to reason that there are Malcolmist demos from the other Pavement records that we just haven't heard yet?
3: I can't guarantee it, but I mean, I think there are definitely some. Okay. But I think also in, in the past, those albums were probably more created in the studio or mm-hmm. at least before they recorded the album this one was kind of different so and you know steve had just moved to portland around this time too right so he he kind of started maybe tinkering with solo stuff so maybe there's more demos for this than previous i mean i'm pretty sure there are some yeah he,
4: that we haven't heard. he had a digital four track that he had in his apartment yeah. and, and and when he and i uh lived in new york I had a four track, and I, I'm sure there's some stuff of us rehearsing there. But you know, just going through the songs that he had already written, that maybe they had played with Gary, and so um, mm. I wouldn't consider that something he specifically did. It was just hit record.
3: But I think I personally, I personally believe there's plenty of stuff in Steve's coffer of all kinds of stuff. Yeah, but you know, he proceeds usually. Is like, oh do whatever you guys want. I don't really want to be involved. I'm not really going to help you, (laughs) you know, but you know, I trust you do whatever you want, you know, but for this one, I just had to keep asking him because I knew he had these and then eventually he came through. Yes. But I'm sure there's, there's, he's got plenty of stuff. I mean, he's, you know, this is what he, he, he can, you know, write a song a day, you know, that's amazing. He
1: doesn't know what he has. Um, Yeah. and, And then I would also say as, as regards to your question, About demos from previous recordings, I mean, there could be some in Gary Young's house from the old days, you know, that you know, in some closet somewhere. There's some that could be in boxes at wherever Canberg (laughs) is. I mean, you know, there was never like an, um, in fact, Yesper, as far as I know, uh, when you were asked to undertake this project of, of, you know, sort of making this whole package better for Terror Twilight, you might be the first person that attempted to do any. archival work for pavement i mean
3: yeah
1: uh nobody has ever basically things have just been thrown in boxes and um or in closets or or whatever i mean um and then of course malcolm you know he's lived in the same house now for many years and and um you know it's not a monstrous house but it's got it's pretty big and there's a lot of rooms and I mean, you know, it, even the like his entire record collection is the basement and it's just one of the it's one of those delightful basements that has all shelves all around it so there must be about 2 or 3000 records on the walls yeah. there. Um, so yeah, and, I mean he he know, you know, and he's um There's
3: bless tapes his down heart. There. I've seen him.
1: Yeah, yeah, bless his heart. Um <laughs> he's one of the most disorganized people I've ever known in my life and uh, which is saying a whole hell of a lot. Um <laughs> and uh he also would be would have made a tremendous product tester because he is so hard on products i mean but he um it's probably all there somewhere he just doesn't want to take you know yesper Ye- was uh, you know pulling his sleeve or whatever saying like you know hey can you can you get this you got to keep in mind that that yesper is one of steven's best friends yeah. and, uh, and 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 steven has as much more respect for yesper as it as a friend and as a person than just about anybody I know. So he's going to be more patient with Jesper than just about anybody else.
3: So I feel like I've bur- that- burned a couple of bridges lately. I feel like, but you know, it's just, yeah, kind of, whatever, you know, you
1: know, yeah. you know <laughs> <laughs> I burned all my bridges back in 99 or whatever.
2: They
3: but, came uh, back. Those bridges came back They were rebuilt. Damn. I think we're, yeah, well, I yeah, think, I, guess I, I, guess I
2: think we're burning some right now, but I'm going to refrain, <laughs> refrain <laughs> from okay. saying more than that. Jesper, what do you make of, you know, it sounds like, you know, Steven very well, by the way, we should say, invitations were also extended to Scott and Stephen. Busy, unavailable. I wasn't trying to exclude it. I love no response from Stephen.
1: <laughs> I mean, you know, no response. I mean, I sent him about five different texts. No response. I
2: love Stephen. Well, Jesper was saying he was keen potentially, but away. Is that right, Jesper?
3: Yeah, he, he did say in this text thread that he was like, "Oh, that sounds cool. I love that guy." Yeesh. However, nice, I'll be on vacation in Hawaii. Yeah, oh, that's very sweet. That's, so so that's he's nice. swimming it in Hawaii.
2: You know? yeah yeah <laughs> well, my point though, yes <laughs> you, you know you know Stephen well, what do you make of his I, it's it's not moodiness, but it's like sometimes he's indifferent. it sounds like about the legacy of the band, the archiving of the band, you know, Bob's alluding to the relative disorganization, demos could be floating all over the goddamn planet, uh, but then I think you also said he put his foot he he will put his foot down sometimes, so he's kind of like whatever, I don't care, but every once in a while he'll he'll say no. And I'm guessing he there's probably something about the other demos from previous records that he doesn't think warrant public consumption. What do you make of his sort of mercurial attitude towards pavement, Jesper?
3: I mean, I, I kind of love it in a way. I mean, it's at the same time, it's like it's the right attitude, and also it's incredibly frustrating because yeah. the guy is obviously a brilliant genius, and he just doesn't really care. I mean, he knows that he is great. He yeah. knows that he can play the guitar. knows he can write incredible songs. And you know he's got a great voice, you know, and amazing lyricists. Yeah. But he just doesn't really have to prove it, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and, and that that kind of it has been you know ongoing since you know I've known him for 30 years, you know. Yeah. And I think that's also you know, that's a positive thing because I hate people who just love themselves, you know. <laughs> I mean he yeah. knows that he's great, you know, but he's yeah. not a narcissist. You know, he's not. You he know, he just yeah. he's you know, his personality is what it is, you know, and I you know I, I would probably not be too you know, not too positive about it if I was a member of his band, maybe, because I can see how frustrating it could be on every level. But at the end of the day, you guys are in the band because you know <laughs> that he's amazing. And, he's, you know, he's also an incredibly great friend, yeah. you know, yes. and that's what matters. You know? Well, uh,
2: Steve, you were saying that you had your first experience with some of these bonus songs, if you will. Just did you say Yesterday?
4: Uh, the day before yesterday, Matador sent me a link. I, I requested um, them to send me a link since we were going to do these interviews. <laughs> wow. It a
2: good idea. You're ahead of me. Yeah. That's it. Thank, <laughs> thank you for doing some research on your own lived experience. That's nice. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, no. I, I appreciate that. And I appreciate that uh, you hadn't heard some of these uh, demos before. So... Uh, keeping in mind you've only had a cursory listen, really, or a chance to have a cursory listen. What did you make of the demos? What do you make of Shit, uh, I
3: feel kind of guilty now because I feel like I'm a little bit responsible. I mean, I I can't... No, I thanks wanna, for oh, getting it out of the way. You I, know, I don't want to blame it on Matador. I just, like, I would like to say that I told them to make sure that you guys got, you know, audio... But I probably, oh, never, I probably never did, you know, because it was such a nightmare mastering it. It took forever. It took like six months mastering it. Oh, I was still under the.
1: I mean, basically, I'm
3: learning from this podcast uh,
1: that you did a lot of um, work that I, I am extremely happy that I didn't have to do one percent <laughs>
2: <laughs> I, uh, I I'm not uh, boasting in any regard, but because I asked as soon as the press release came out, I was sent the thing and uh, the download I should say of the record I only got the liners last week myself uh, like a pdf of them so I'm uh, well done on that too Jesper like I in a sense if Mark were here we would be uh, replicating the liners we would be doing like a theatrical adaptation of the liners with all of us together because as I recall Jesper your roundtable discussion was primarily with Bob Steve and Mark is that correct?
3: Indeed. Yeah. Yeah. No, because yeah, I wanted so- to, you know, every other reissue had just been like Scott and um, Steve say something, write something. Yeah. yeah. And I really, you know, like, what about these other guys in the band? Maybe they <laughs> yeah. should be heard too, you know?
2: Yeah, and, and Scott Scott wrote like an essay, I guess is the way to put it, uh, for this. Like our, yeah, I think he did
3: every each, every yeah. one, maybe, right? Yeah. That's right.
2: Yeah, anyway. Sorry, Steve, uh, cursory listen. You've just started living with the stuff you may have never heard. What was your take on the demos as they relate to what became the final record?
4: Steven's demos I thought were great and fun with all this sense, and it's, it has a real lighthearted feel to it. And the live stuff I thought sounded awesome to me. The uh, few live takes of the of the songs after we had learned them. Yeah. um and you gotta love the porpoise and the hang grenade i just uh <laughs> I, I love that song and to yeah. hear that again just now when i do practice and that one comes on it just frightens my morning oh let me write oh, that nice. down
1: maybe we'll try to learn that to play live yeah there's a lot of them. There's a lot of them
2: yeah bob do you are you in charge of set lists
1: um, generally, basically by default, but yeah, no, I would say over the history of the band, I've probably written at least four or fifths of the set list, maybe more. Okay, so
2: this is another just shoot. because
1: Canberg's so bad at it, and then so we'll play a <laughs> we'll play a really bad show, and like um, I'll, I'll say yeah, maybe I should, I guess I'll you know whatever. I guess I'll start doing the set list. So like you know, um, yeah. So that's pretty much how it's so, worked Wouldn't it so, you say what, like
3: Bob, you would write the set list and then that would be it. There would be no, no one would change. Oh, it. No,
1: it no, no. You'd have to give it, you'd have to show it to Malphus and to the guitar tech and to right. to make sure that I had the tuning groups.
3: Right. Right. But, yeah, 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 you know, yeah, like yeah. really like a,
1: a, a certain percentage of the way into a tour, I sort of knew all the tuning. Like, yeah, I think Dimick would give me a chart with all these things that look like code next to Right, song grouping. So I knew how to do it properly. Then Malcolmus might make one change. You know what I mean? And right, again, right. you talk about the definition of a cursory glance. He probably would spend like three to five seconds looking at it and then wave me off. That's fine. Like you know, <laughs> I mean, I think he would probably just look at the first song and, and and maybe change that because he you know he didn't want to play that song first. You know, what I mean, but whatever. That's a
2: that's a chill way of. Of, uh, in my experience uh, playing in bands, you do have to be like, uh, you know, going on stage is weird and you uh, have yeah. to kind of com- compartmentalize a bunch of feelings. So if some I used to write the set list and it gave me a sense of control over the situation, I would say uh, to stem my anxiety. I'm sure Stephen is just like, whatever. I'm not going to worry about that. You've done it. It's probably fine. Let's go and i feel also, like so you know
3: he's he's yeah. self-confident you know he knows yeah. that his songs are great he's like well you know i got a hundred songs that we know how to play yeah there might be three of them that i don't really like that much but all the others are killers
2: yeah yeah so in in yeah. in this ref, in this reflective process sorry bob i didn't ask you the same question i gather you haven't had a chance to sift through this whole collection yet and listen to it is that is that right
1: no, but I've done enough interviews and heard enough opinions from journalists um, as to what's good and bad about it.
2: Okay, <laughs> my question, uh, my question is, uh, and it's for everyone really, but I'll start with you, Bob. Is there anything about this reflective process, about Terror Twilight and these sessions, that has surprised you particularly? Something that you hadn't considered in the time, in the moment that you know you were actually experiencing these things, making these songs, making this record. Uh, or in the interview process, is there anything that's sort of, you're like, oh, I didn't even think of that. Anything like that? No. Not one surprise? You were you were like, this is all <laughs> exactly what I expected it to be?
1: I mean, you know, basically, I've, you know, I never thought this prod project would cut, come to life in the first place. And I'm intrigued that, um, you know, all the hard work that had to go into actually making a package, because I think that the like Jesper was saying, the earlier packages were were easier to throw together. Um, you know, combined with the fact that, as a payment record, you know, Terra Twilight was the last one,
3: mm-hmm.
1: and uh, I think really sort of you know a, a big part of this and this this record and this package coming out is that um, you know, payment's very blessed, like a lot of bands, but but very blessed. Our fans are really hardcore enthusiastic. There's a lot of payment completists out there. And they've been clamoring for this record. I think that that's a significant part of why why the idea stayed alive. And then the fact that we're not only doing these these shows, but also you know doing a bit of a tour in the second half of this year, uh, it seemed I'm sure like you know the star the stars align that it seemed like a good time to put something out. Yeah. Um, so from a business perspective, all that stuff is logical to me. And then yeah. I think that you know what Jesper described as as a lot of extra work to make a a package that, you know, was comparable to the previous packages, Um, you know, a lot more was required just for the very basic reason that there just wasn't a whole hell of a lot extra material like the previous records.
2: Right. Uh, Steve, similar question. Again, I know you're just getting uh, used to it, but uh, Steve, have you been doing a few interviews in this regard uh, beyond the one you did with the Esper for the liners?
4: Um, I've got one at one thirty, and the other night I, I did one as well. Okay.
1: So well, was, well, you said the pitchfork one was bad. Why was that bad? Cause I talked to the same guy. I'm sure. Well, well, tell me about that real quick. Let's hear, let's hear. I mean, you said the pitchfork one was bad. The guy annoy you or something?
4: <laughs> no, no. I just got the impression that he was trying to get me to say something not positive about other people. <laughs> <laughs> you should have <laughs> called me back.
2: <laughs> that is a that that is a thing there's a feeling like the relations are fraught so people try to exploit them I don't really get that's not my bag uh so I don't really understand why, <laughs> I don't understand why people do it but I do think Bob you have a tendency Rock and roll Yeah you have a tendency though Bob we were kind of I was being facetious about you burning bridges earlier but I've sometimes I think about our conversations on the record and they're pretty amazing. Like you just say whatever the hell you tell, you say the truth as you see it, Bob. And sometimes I'm like, Mm -hmm. what is everyone else in that band? gonna think of what bob just said i have that notion in my mind and as i'm editing i'm like maybe i should take that out but now i just let it go and nothing happens nothing seems to happen
1: yeah no i think b i think uh, i'm confident that none of my bandmates are gonna read any of it <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
2: <laughs> well anyway uh sorry my question was steve has anything about uh, what people are saying to you in interviews beyond trying to get you to have fights is anything that people are saying to you about this collection or in your experience with Jesper and pondering this, has anything surprised you per se about, you know, or altered your perception of that time in your life?
4: No. I mean, I was surprised with some of those songs that I'd never heard. Uh, other than that, it was pretty much what I remembered. The S- Camber songs, I didn't even know because I don't think we recorded them. I think he played with other people and. He wasn't ready to, you know, have us record them at that time. And and then I'm like, well, where did these come from? (laughs) And then it kind of jogged my memory. You know, some of those became Preston School of Industry. And, you know, of course, I was doing my Marble Valley stuff at the time, too. So maybe that should have been on it. That would have been cool. But um, that would have been fun to have a little bit of, you know, if that's what it's going to be. And then then at least on this package. I was yeah. told the hook um, turned into a jig song. So it was that transition time when musically we were doing stuff as pavement and what became something else once we broke up. So, um, yeah. you know, that Just was kind of fun for me, fun for me to experience that, at least the, the Scott side of it, those songs of his.
2: Yeah, it is part of the, now again, not to engage in the any form of mudslinging, but it is part of the narrative in the liners and, and of this record that uh, Scott didn't it felt that Stephen didn't want to work on his usual you know requisite one or two contributions to this record and uh, I mean that's come to pass in the track listing but yeah we are hearing these songs now and uh, and they appeared elsewhere as you said um I don't want to go down this road too much. that's that's the facts as right? I, yes, I per-
1: recall as I recall I and from my impression, um, both in Portland and then in New York, that Camburg really didn't have much to offer when we when we oh, made okay. the record. And then by the time we went to we got to the real fancy s- studio in New York, my impression was we better get this shit done because this place looks expensive. I mean, right? Yeah, right. you know, yeah. yeah. I mean, it was okay. intimidating. It was like the kind of place that you'd expect to see, like you know, Paula Abdul or you know, Nicki <laughs> Minaj or something. I was like, man, don't don't break anything in here, boys.
2: That would be yeah, fun, though. Yeah, that, would be, that would be fun to see Paula Abdul and Nicki Minaj. I would enjoy that if I was in yeah, the band. I'd, I, I'd rather see fun. them than,
1: than, than this.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Jesper, I'm going to ask the same question of you, just since you have this uh, bird's-eye view of the experience. Did anything in your research or in your conversations with the band uh, surprise you about this process uh, of making this record and and the stuff you, you uncovered, I suppose, for the uh, bonus material? I
3: don't know. I think... You know, the thing that struck me the most is probably how great the album is, which I don't know if I thought that at the time. I feel the same. the, general, the yeah. general idea was that it was kind of, you know, it was produced, it was a little too slick, maybe, and it was, you know, not as like ramshackle as the other albums, which I kind of liked, you know. Yeah. I think I didn't really quite understand the record at the time, and I don't think I listened to it that closely.
2: Yeah.
3: Which I had to do. and going through all the tapes and stuff and remastering it, you know, several times now. And I really came to appreciate how great this album is. Well, and it, it, it didn't really occur to me before. I don't think I just, I just wasn't in that mindset. I don't think also, you know, when you, you work for a record label, you don't really, you know, you don't love things so much, you know, because you're working with it all the time. It's like, a, it's, I mean, it's a product, right? Yeah. yeah of yeah. course you love the band and stuff, but you don't really, you don't really immerse yourself that much because you also have to get the work done now that i don't work in matter anymore i can kind of do it on my free time it's more of a labor of love you know
2: yeah absolutely and i I can
3: see it from an also you know it's 20 whatever odd years later yeah It, it just it's a different thing and i it really holds up great i think you know usually with old albums drum sounds are terrible stuff like that you know but this sounds it could could have been recorded now.
2: Absolutely. And speaking of uh, feeling like a different album, we can't let go of the fact that there's a new sequence for it. The original sequence of the album, I believe, was uh, uh, organized, if you will, implemented by Scott Canberg. And uh, but there was uh, we have I didn't know this in the folklore. I, I just didn't know, remember this that Nigel Nigel the producer Nigel Nigel Godrich had a different sequence. You guys ultimately went with Scott's. The new one... We
1: didn't have a choice.
2: What is that about? Somebody... You know, I was just talking to John Spencer about this. Or no, it was Lee Ronaldo. Sorry, I'm getting my... Big difference. uh, 90s heroes. Yeah, they are quite different. They're quite distinct personalities. (laughs) Lee Ronaldo was like, did the record label make them not go with the Nigel one? Like, why? And I was like, I don't know. I'm going to talk to those guys in a bit and I'll find out. So here we are. What happened there? Uh, The two sequence... Like, I will say, like Jesper is saying... I have the Nigel sequence that I've been playing since I got the download in uh, January. It's like a whole new experience. I love it like I I can't I haven't gone back to the old sequence so I can't compare them. Bob, your hand is up uh, so I'm gonna call upon you in the class. What's going on with these sequences?
1: okay I, I recall the scenario of of both of them having different sequences. I believe. And I'm not sure if it would be 100% of the time that uh, that Scott, one of his beloved tasks in Pavement was sequencing. And if he didn't sequence every Pavement record from the start, he had to have done the majority of them. So he sort of took it upon himself as that was one of his sort of, sort of highly valued jobs in the band. Yeah, I guess sort of you, in a similar way, as you know me making the majority of the set lists um but it was all you know obviously album album sequences are far more important than you know than whatever than set lists in most cases so um i think you know basically that's the way we'd always done it and and um you know so scott probably won whatever argument there was i mean uh I think one of the one of the most intriguing things about the package is, is that it's in the Nigel sequence because, you know, the most significant thing about Terra Twilight in terms of uh, payment record is Nigel. I mean, you know, he, he yeah. I mean, he was, you know, he he was not the sixth most important member of the project. He was more like number two, yeah. and uh, yeah. you know, the basically the music was you know kind of entirely put in his hands. We started at the so- Sonic Youth practice space, and thankfully he really quickly acknowledged that there's no way he could make the record that he wanted to make in that space because it was just too primitive. Um, so that's why we ended up in, in the different studio. And he had an idea of, you know, he wanted to make a good payment record, obviously, not only for the band, but also for his burgeoning career. And we put our music, or, you know, Stephen put his music, in this case, in Nigel's hands because he trusted him and had been told basically that Nigel's Nigel's good and he's worth it so you know when Nigel made that record I mean I'm sure he had ideas about every single element of it I mean it was really Steve malcolm's Nigel Godrich and and the pavement band I mean you know yeah, yeah um yeah. so I mean that which I have no problems with and I think one of the reasons why I thought it was very interesting here hear Jesper who has listened to Terror Twilight and everything associated with it probably 200 times more than I have at this point, mm-hmm. that to me, too, to, um, I've been saying the same thing about it. Like the, I think really the reason why it was not as received as well by Pavement fans was because it had a, a, a completely different sounding production and sound aesthetic from the previous records, which was a, a goal of the record. I mean, obviously, no band wants... You know, to eating. repeat themselves. Yeah. So, I mean, th- so that was something we were very secure with because, like, okay, this definitely does not sound like Bright in the Corners or anything before it. So, that was welcome for the band. And I think, you know, it probably a, a shock to the system of a lot of fans. Like, they want more of the same, they want that same feeling the same joy that the you know music brings them um you know it was just a different feel it's a, it, it's a different emotion you said it because a different emotion mm-hmm. I thought it was interesting that Jesper said you could hear it for the first time today and not know whether it was recorded in 1999 or 2017 I yeah. mean uh, yeah. I feel the same way about it I think that that it has sort of a uh, a, set, a more modern sound, I think it's it's held up pretty well over the years, unlike Slanted and Shanna, which I think is a brilliant record. I thought it was out of this world in 1991 when I heard it for the first time. But now it does sound like a low to medium-fi record that was made in 1991. I mean, yeah. it's dated from a sound aesthetic perspective, and Deterra Twilight's not.
2: Well, I think a similar perception was probably in play when Brighton the Corners came out uh, because it had sort of a it, it sort of distinguished itself from the past catalog mm-hmm. I, would, I think in my memory Steve, Yes, st- yes. St- Steve, Steve, what do you make of that? Uh, it seems like those last two records you guys made do seem to me anyway separate from maybe the pack. What do you think
4: well uh mitch's mitch Easter's studio was he was a pro. Super pro, super nice guy. So he got some really good sounds, even though we were pretty much recording in his old house and we practiced in my old house. So it wasn't as much of a shock for us to go to a pro studio, kind of like we went to that. I think it's Echo Canyon in London with Nigel. No, no, no.
2: Echo Canyon's uh, Sonic Youth studio in in New York. I think the yeah. That's what was the New RAK. York? RPM.
3: RPM. RPM. RPMs. What it called. R-P-M. That. that was a fancy yeah. studio. Yeah.
4: yeah. And that's you know where everyone you kind of feel a little out of place. At least um, I think we did because all the other studios we went to had a real vibe to it or like really unprofessional vibes like mm-hmm. you know it was one guy's apartment and of course i wasn't there for gary's but gary's studio I'm sure garage. it was his garage <laughs> yeah so you know there's you, you you address more pressure to it when you know like bob said the, the price tag per hour is going up but i must say that nigel he might have took it, taken a lot of the slack out of the recording process and what, what he got on tape But what he did do is replace it with something that, you know, when you look at the five albums, you go, well, this last album is what pavement could have been if, you know, if they were tighter and everything. And he he put in a lot of production and uh, sounds in there that, you know, kind of made up for that. So it's different. And it's it holds up on its own rather than just repeating itself, which was we got lucky. That we didn't repeat ourselves, in that yeah. that waning year.
2: Yeah, absolutely. The the record. So we mentioned the different studios. There's some other distinctions that stick out for me. There are songs where not all of you are even playing on them. Um, like the core That's band, cool. there's guests that I, I again. I'm, there's probably been guests on. I'm I may be blanking on significant guests right now, but Johnny Greenwood from Radiohead plays harmonica on the record these are distinctions like am i right am i missing oh, something yeah, yeah
1: there's somebody else who played on it too but i you know that's the kind of thing i don't recall
2: yeah but but that's different that was also that was unusual for there to be a lot of guests right and and other people actually Did I interject yes yes, yes for, please please do
3: yeah uh what's his name dominic marcotte yeah yeah, he played yeah, drums yeah, yeah. He's great. he played drums I on uh, major leagues and uh and carrot rope because those songs were actually recorded in london yeah yeah and I think you guys probably didn't hear those songs until they
1: it, came out, or until we got the, du- reported, yeah, until yeah. we got the, you know, the, the, what did the CD right before the album comes out It's the first time I've ever heard of right. it, right? And I've always, I mean, yeah. I, I personally, I've always hated Carrot Rope. I hate that song.
3: You hate it. go back to the uh, sequencing for a second? Oh, yeah. When, sorry, like, sorry, I, sorry. Know, yeah, go ahead. I would not, you know, the head honcho or anything at Matador. You know, that was Chris Lombardi and Gerard Cosloy and to an extent Patrick Amory, mm-hmm. who's now also um, a co-owner. But I think they they had a kind of a big influence on the sequence because they're always looking for like we got to find a key whatever song for, you know, radio track or a single track. And I think and, you know, I'm pretty sure I wasn't in those discussions so much. but I, mean, I overheard them, of course. But I think they were a little afraid that it was just too heavy of a beginning of an album, you know, platform right. blues to the hex, you know, it's just like, and that was exactly what Nigel wanted. You yeah. want to like, yeah. I want to just barrage you with this, the full force of and pavement. And Sounds cool to me. You know, I want the people, you know, to stay beyond that. And the, the ones that leave, okay, fuck them. Right, you know, right, and and then I think also there was a little bit of a problem like with Carrot Rope. Where do we put this song? And it doesn't even sound like a song. That's under the deluxe really Package, so It comes
1: out 15 years later. <laughs>
3: yeah, <laughs> so that's how it became. You know, there was like very last in the album, and it just says and Carrot Rope. But it was it was recorded late. It didn't really have the same vibe as the other track. Right. So I think the sequence as it ended up being was you know Matador influence. And then band influence. You right. know, I think that there was a lot of back and forth between Scott and maybe even Stephen and Matador. Okay, fair enough. And,
2: you know,
3: fair enough. That's what I think.
2: Steve, I <laughs> want to go to you because I, I think most notably you're not playing drums on a couple of songs. Like, what did you make of the guests and the people? I think part of it in my mind is like they were in England working on stuff and they just wanted to get it down and whoever was around was around yeah. probably. like I, get, I gather from the liners that there was just a feeling that those performances could be improved. Like, how do you, how do you feel about it all? The, how, how do you feel about this all the, and I don't know what that even means. I don't, I mean, it could mean Me that either. The, yeah. I don't know if the songs are radically different in their original uh, recordings or what, or. Um, Nigel
1: um, felt like they needed to be improved probably.
2: Right. Steve, how do you feel about that? Like just the guests and, and yourself in particular, like that's your instrument. How do you feel?
4: Well, I wasn't there. So the job needed to be done. I wish I had been there would have been great to give it another swing. I guess they decided I didn't know anything you know, about it. We were it. at the New York studio that, um, you know, what well, those takes weren't good yeah. or, uh, they wanted to give him another swing. And I was really happy when I found out that uh, Dom had the opportunity to do it. He's a great guy. And, you know, to be, put, uh, put too much value on, um, you know, being upset that I'm not on it when we've had albums where some of the guys in the band weren't even there when we recorded the EP or the album. It, it would be kind of silly yeah. to, uh, yeah. to be too upset about that. So I thought he did a fantastic job and um, I'm glad that, um, you know, Nigel and the other guys got it done.
2: Yeah. Uh, Bob, you were going to say something, I think.
4: No, no.
1: He was saying that um, band members that weren't there for recording things. Oh, and oh. I, I didn't know any – I didn't actually even know that the thing in London happened until um, – I can't even remember if I ever found out. And um, is,
2: Yeah. Okay. So is all all of this is what, what I'm getting at. Basically, we, the bottom what?
1: line is if, if like, um, your attendance wasn't required, then you weren't informed. I mean, and that's fine. I mean, like um, – you know what I mean, it was the same way with like, I, I don't think I I know for a fact I've never, never been a part of any pavement mixing process because I didn't want to hear them turn up the absurd shit that were on my tracks and critique it. I mean, you know, my attitude was just like, if you want to use any of this crap, then you can. And I tried my best. And I think there's some pretty interesting stuff on it. And. I was always pretty pleased that when records came out, that that whatever I was doing would get used in a lot of cases. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I sort of marvelled at that because, you know, most of it—most of it—I thought was completely disposable. But, um, I, you know, whatever—it's all beside the point. I think you know that's the way, payment worked. Is is um, if you needed to be there, then then you'd be there, and if 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 you're if you weren't needed, why have you know? People show up in terms of Dominic, um, you know, playing drums on the tracks is that when they probably, you know, listen to what they had when they're putting the finishing touches or, or making new songs or, you know, whatever, um, you know, they needed a drummer and, uh, you know, I mean, I don't think it was, you know, probably necessary to fly fly somebody in. It's just like, okay, well, you know, the, this guy's right here, and he's extremely good, and we need to, we can get it done today. I mean, you know, so you know, yeah. what? Why wait around? You know?
2: Yeah. No, and I appreciate that. These are the facts. They're all in the liners, and I think some of them have been floating around for years. Mm-hmm. I guess where I'm coming from with these with this line of questioning is, it seems to me uh, from the outside that these are different things. That occurred in the course of like things that happened in Pavement's history that hadn't really happened before. A guy from Radiohead's playing harmonica on your song. There's a different drummer. There is speculation that even in the making of this album, Terra Twilight, it felt like Pavement was kind of wrapping up and ending. And you can, you guys have kind of hinted at that. Steve did, you know, Scott did some songs that ended up being solo songs. Steven did. St- Steve West did. Did it feel at the time? Like, uh, Bob, I'll go to you with this, Bob. Did it feel like in the moment, like, yeah, I think this is kind of going to end after we do this round of touring or whatever? Like, did it feel like uh, so different that it might be splitting up?
1: I mean, really not until well into the touring year um, from my standpoint. And then it sort of became clear, you know, because, you know, Jesper, he had mentioned earlier that he'd been good friends with with Stephen for you know decades and and you know I've known him he's been one of my best friends since I was 18 and um you know Stephen talked to me about certain things and and um you know he he clearly expressed while we were well into touring the record the following summer that he had grown frustrated with just the basic tenet that he was making all of this music and presenting it, and recording it, and then touring it with people that weren't putting the time in when when the band wasn't active, it was mm-hmm. a source of it was a source of frustration for him. And, and the and the main concern he had is that um, I remember him saying, "You guys don't even listen to music much anymore," mm-hmm. and and stuff and stuff like that. And he was he was right. And um, I think that. He wanted a different experience in that he wanted to play. Uh, he had moved to Portland, established himself in Portland and started to make friends there, and he wanted to play with people that he could get better with. I mean, you know, I, th- I think that he felt like he had sort of, uh, you know, in his own way, it, it had done enough of, of being in a band that was very projecty, regardless of its, of its significance. He wanted to be in a band with people that were really enthusiastic about playing music. Mm-hmm. And I think that he had that impression of us when we were on tour, but, um, you know, he couldn't tell or it, it seemed to him that not that we were taking advantage of him, um, but that we were not putting it all in. And I think that's all fair. So as things got closer to the end, at the end of that European tour, you know it, it became clear that it was over but during the actual portland stage of the record and new york city you know there were good days and bad days just like previous recording sessions i didn't really get any indication that 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 it was going to be it for pavement terror twilight however in addition to terror twilight and the tour there was there was also a, a concern that i felt and And I'm sure some of my bandmates felt that just sort of music was sort of changing out of this like big boom of indie rock, Hmm. mostly started by and grunge and lo-fi and all that stuff had it was like had run its course by the end of the 90s. And that pavement was going to have to go in some sort of direction, um, we'd already made a step in a different direction with terror twilight and we were going to have to keep evolving and just the reluctance to evolve i think was there so i mean mm-hmm. there's a lot of factors at play that very much felt like the band should stop and as the year went on it became it became clear to me that it was it was you know a good time to for lack of a better way of putting it quit while we're
4: ahead
2: yeah, fair enough. Um, I appreciate that, Steve. Do you have a take on this line of questioning and anything Bob just said?
4: Yeah, I mean, when you're in a band that gets that kind of uh, some type of notable attention, make music for five, ten years, uh, your you know your relationships and your creative relationships they get used up. You know, touring and doing interviews and mm-hmm. TV shows and everything. It's a lot of experiences to go through. Yeah, and I think just like a lot of bands, you, you come to your end, it's time to get a divorce and um, everyone wanted to go on and do different things. And uh, I think it was the right time. Um, It's not easy. It's not easy for everyone, especially when you have Steven being the super really talented creative force. He goes on and he can, you know, just step on to the next career. And it's a little bit harder for the other members, who aren't nearly as talented uh, to figure out what they're going to do. But it's natural, and um, I have no um, bad feelings about any of that. Even the last year was great. You know, the ups and downs was part of it.
2: Yeah. I uh, will tell you personally, I saw the Terror Twilight Tour at the government in Toronto Mm -hmm. with, uh, was it the Lonesome Organist opening shows for you guys?
1: Yep, sure was.
2: I'd never seen anything quite like that. That was interesting. I don't, I just have a, I've never followed it. I think, I, I thought think it was pretty ones, good. it's interesting, isn't it? Like I, for a one man band, I thought it was quite good. And I thought the show was great. And I think it was early in the tour, right? Maybe like the Toronto show, maybe. Yeah, it was.
1: And I, one thing I can tell you about, you know, we've gotten better as a live band. I mean, we've got, we were God awful in the early nineties, but you know, the second half of the nineties were just more consistent and more, if anything sort of in a in a good way boring i mean yeah um you know we we weren't certainly we're never a well-oiled machine but we we weren't we the chances of us embarrassing ourselves went down yeah yeah yeah, yeah.
2: <laughs> no it was great i have a sense memory i saw the bright in the corner shows at the phoenix and that was really fantastic like really really fantastic and then the the Terra Twilight show was fantastic, and and then I I would have seen the uh, Olympic Island reunion show you guys did with Broken oh, yeah. Social Scene on the island, that, and uh, that was fun. Yeah.
4: Oh yeah, I remember
1: that. Yeah, yeah, so
2: I saw there was it was good times. Uh, every That's time when I we stuck... found
1: out. Let me tell you a quick I'll interject, real quick. <laughs> um, That's I remember being in the car on I guess the way from the airport or something to that festival site at what was it called Olympic Park?
2: I think Olympic Island. Yeah, uh, Olympic Island. And yeah.
1: finding out, I think the previous week, I'm pretty I'm sure the previous weekend had been pit the Pitchfork Festival.
2: Oh, in Chicago. And, yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, and I found out that in that car ride that um a big part of the pitchfork festival, and I can't remember what night we played, we headlined one of the nights, was that I'm not sure it's the first time they'd ever done it, but people could watch all the entire content of that festival online all over the world. So like a lot of my friends that you know, don't go to shows or to my family, everything like you know, all kinds of people were you know, my buddies in England and stuff who wanted to you know to see see it had tuned in to that pitchfork feed. So we so we come on to play our show, and a thing, or thing, a thing pops up on the screen. is like you know, I can't remember the reasons that were given. That the pavement show will not be seen. So I've got, I've had about, you know, tw- 20, 30 friends all over the, all over the country <laughs> in the world that <laughs> some of whom are 75 years old or whatever. And they're all like just, you know, wading through God huh. knows what, you know, to, um, to see the pavement show. And I, so I find that out six days later in the car on the way to this thing at Olympic Island. And the reason being was they'd given Preston School of Industry a bad number rating and about 45 minutes or an hour before the show, um, Scott. Uh, told whomever that that they <laughs> couldn't they couldn't they couldn't show the payment
2: show. <laughs> oh my god! Yeah. So like, <laughs> oh so, I god. Talked to, so I
1: talked to John MacArthur like about you know whatever. The next day he's like, "Holy shit, man! I went to tune into this this Pitchfork thing and you guys weren't even." So I just I had no idea. So I'm sitting in the car and like, "Why was our Pitchfork thing not shown?" It's like, "Well, they gave Preston School of Industry a five point three. I was like... I was oh like, you God. asked your bandmates, you know, like that should be a band vote issue, you know what
2: I mean? Like, oh boy, okay, well, yeah. Uh, yeah. That's, yeah. so yeah, I, I, uh, I, Bob, I just want to say, I know it's late I'm in the Island, baby. we're wrapping yeah. up soon, but I just want to make a point of saying, uh, Bob, I love you. I just love you. Yeah. I love you. Yeah. I love the things yeah. you <laughs> say. I love the way you yeah, speak. No. It's fun. Now, uh, thank you, I know, I know from past experience speaking with Bob and. Uh, Steve here, that asking anyone, really anyone, about Malcolmus's lyrics is a fool's errand. But, Jesper, I must ask, you're very objective. I'm very objective. Do you have any particular perspective on his li- I know Stephen defers Malcolmus, I mean. He'll say, I don't know, it's whatever, it's whatever it was. Do you have any particular perspective on his lyrical approach with this particular batch of songs or motifs that come up? Things that you, that you find striking?
3: You know i think they're actually very personal most of his songs yeah. even though they they come across as not yeah and i think you know his personality comes through uh because they're they're reluctantly amazing you know yeah. sometimes it works you know in incredible ways maybe sometimes it doesn't work so well but most of the time they just come out of him when he has to he's like you know it's the last thing that happens he's like okay i really gotta write the lyrics now because i gotta record the vocals in 10 minutes you know And he's had, you know, some kind of, you know, on all these demos and whatever live takes that they were doing in rehearsal, they would just be some like scratch vocal with just some gibberish, but there might be a word or two there that we used later. And then, I think he just, you know, it's it's like doing a I don't know, school test or something. You don't do anything until you really have to do it. Yeah, and He really totally. he probably hates writing lyrics. <laughs> he's so, <laughs> totally. but yeah, he's so. It just seems like they always come yeah. out like in the studio when he has to perform, and then that's he's best under pressure, maybe. And I think you know most of the times they're they're under underrated lyrics.
2: They're yeah. completely underrated, I think, on some level. And yeah. uh, I mean, I think those of us who love them have rated them very highly uh, maybe yeah they're probably you know <laughs> he
3: can come across a little nonchalant maybe or something and maybe you know is intellectual and he could be kind of wordy and I think also he sells himself short in that regard you know he, I don't know um, I kind of hate rock and roll lyrics and I never minded <laughs> his you know.
2: architecture students are like virgins with an itch they cannot scratch never build a building till you're 50 what kind of life is that that's incredible. Indeed. That's incredible. Yeah. Like I, I was listening to that yeah. today, and I just look at me. I'm not reading anything, guys. I just know that's in my head now because I've been listening to the record over and over again.
3: He just has this little
2: funny I mean, thing. One thing
3: that we, be, yeah, I mean, I I tried to push him for years to write a book, you yeah. know, because I know you can write good books. He just didn't have. I mean, he doesn't. You know, he doesn't. He doesn't push himself. And that's always been a frustration because I, you know. Yeah for me, uh, viewing him from the outside, because I know he could be a really great author. But he doesn't have to be. He doesn't have anything to prove. Well,
2: I will say this. Mm -hmm. uh, This is maybe a tangent. Bob, one thing I was thinking about uh, in terms of this batch of payment songs is that it followed uh, Stephen having a more prominent role as a writer and a singer on the Silver Jews album, American Water. Uh, And I, I don't know. That's from 98, I think. Yeah, that's from 98. So I assume he was then working on Terra twilight after that i don't know do you have any insight about whether that particular experience with david Berman activated something in Stephen, like did it
1: oh i think that you know those guys had known each other <laughs> <Yeah>. since um <laughs> 1986 they really um you know they were around each other at university of virginia where where Stephen was a history and english double major who wrote his thesis on the history of the american country club um it's like a huh. 90 page thesis and um Perhaps maybe that's the reason, Jesper, that he's not an author. Is I remember that being a particularly arduous task. I mean, you <laughs> know, <and> Steve, Steve, <laughs> Stephen's not Steven's not somebody who enjoys arduous tasks. <laughs> no, um, David was. You know, I mean, Stephen really. I think he. And when we were in college, you know, David certainly knew that he was a poet first. I I think David came to music because he figured it was the best avenue. He loved music, and it, it was the best avenue for people to hear his poetry. Stephen was sort of the opposite in that he was a guitar player and songwriter. And so he would listen to music for song structure and, and listen to the music. And, and, you know, lyrics were something that just like any music listener were priority. But that's not why he loved, you know, a lot of the music that he listened to. His cons- consumption of music from, you know, the time I met him and I was actually listening to a lot of music then, but but he's more he was on just I mean he it was he, he had to listen to huge amounts of music. Yeah, right. Um, as time went on, when we all moved to the New York City area, and and David and Stephen, their relationship uh, grew um, and got better. It's, it's you know at a few points they were actually really really close and really good friends, and. Especially Dave is an incredibly competitive person, or was. An yeah, competitive. That's what I was yeah. going to say. Incredibly competitive person. That's the right word. <laughs> with with with, and, with um, other
2: songwriters, I've heard this. Like he would get. Oh,
1: certainly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. and uh, and Malcomous being probably the first one that he was really competitive with, with because um, they had worked together, they were friends, and um, and one that mattered and,
3: the most, probably.
1: Exactly, yeah. and yeah. and uh, and Berman was, I think, sort of taken aback by payment's success. Um, I don't think that he was straightforward, jealous of it, I, but I think that he could not keep down that he had a bit of resentment for it. And as time went on, David was very determined to – I think it was a spurring force for, for David. Yeah, um, yeah. Which I think – and I think that the other thing he realized for records like American Water and each time that – including Purple Mountains where where he gave Stephen a go um, for a certain period of time, that regardless of where their relationship had gone over the years, that David felt that his work was enhanced by playing with Stephen. Mm -hmm. And then Stephen also enjoyed the role of being more of a secondary songwriter – in Silver Jews from the start, so it kind of like, you know, Stephen got to be the ace and the whole guitar player who would sing background vocals, and he was v- very much a part of the creative process and, and a, an incredibly important version of uh, member of Silver Jews when he was in the band. Yeah, I think that David, if he did anything for Stephen from an artistic perspective, he was critical of Stephen's lyrics. He admired a lot of them. And so, if anything, he probably put a little bit of pressure on Stephen because, you know, Stephen knew that he had this guy that was going to critique every, everything he he did, because that's really the way David listens to music. Mm -hmm. He he listened, he listened to lyrics first, um, generally, especially later in his life when he'd established himself as a, you know, as a, as a famous lyricist. Um, Oh,
2: yeah. When I would send David songs I thought he might like, he always, Would respond about the lyrics.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was just like it's because that's what he that's what he was best at. And um, I remember, you know, sort of towards the end of his life. um, In fact, the last time I hung out with him, which was on his birthday before he uh, before he killed himself, is. he had told me that there are so many good young lyricists right now and so many different genres. And I was like, well, I'm sort of unaware of him. He's like, and he, I, I can't, I can't remember whether he gave me a list. I, I think he told me he was going to give me a list and he never gave me, which I don't give a shit about, but <laughs> I, I think that he was, he was very aware of the fact that. Or he felt like a certain amount of pressure because he thought there was like a lot of talented people from younger generations that were really good lyricists that might threaten his mantle as the king of lyrics, you know, <laughs> and, um, <laughs> that's the way he saw things. And, um, so I think that, you know, I think that Steven was a source of frustration for him first because of his, you know, what I think David found this su- success of pavement, the attention that pavement was getting in the early nineties, alarming, And it was a real kick in the sea of the pants to him, which was beneficial to him and 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 everybody involved with him. And uh, then I think that you know David also successfully challenged Stephen. Um, So I think they really both benefited from what was in the main a very awkward friendship um, that had a lot of lot of peaks and valleys. Yeah, you know, I think that's
3: what you just said is entirely right. I couldn't put it better myself. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't have put that into words. When
4: when I lived in New York in my loft, and uh, Stephen and David would come over, and we'd turn on the four track, and the two of those guys would, uh, would start playing, and just off the cuff, whatever, and you could hear them trade off lyrics and songs off, you know, off the top of their head, and uh, then David would mix it together the four tracks, and he made a, a couple of tapes. They're called the Laguardia Session. And they're just amazing to hear really how these cool. two really top notch songwriters and lyrics that just are playing on each other. And you can hear the competition and you can hear how they're spurring <laughs> each other on. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it was one of the top moments of in me playing with anybody. I mean, I'm very fortunate to have a chance to know both of those guys. Same can be
1: said of, you know, Dime Map of the Reap. Same, yeah. Even when Steve, Steve West knows how to play drums. Um, yeah. I'm sitting there, you know, <laughs> pretty drunk in a basement apartment. And I barely know how to keep time at all. And these two guys are doing the same thing that he's describing. And all we had was, a you know, a tape recorder, a, you know, $2 thrift store tape recorder on top of a box TV set. Right. And uh, so it's the same sort of thing. I mean, they just really um, were advantaged by – uh, working together and it, it was cool that they achieved that level of friendship because for the first several we- years in Charlottesville they just didn't hit it off I mean, Steven's a sports fan David couldn't give a shit about sports They just didn't have any obvious connection points like I did individually with you know them in other areas you know what I mean uh, you know yeah. Steve came from a completely separate he was a year older and he came from a separate clique at UVA. And, um, you know, we welcomed him, him into our, our weird little scene. And, uh, but he was more of a fringe player because unlike the rest of us, he would only come around, he was a responsible student, which, um, which was obviously a foreign <laughs> idea to me. And, um, he, he would come around like, you know, once or once or twice a week, um, after he was like, you know, done. Cause he... He worked hard at UVA. I mean, it, it was, uh, you know, he took the challenge. I, 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 whatever his GPA was high and he whatever. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. he was a student first and a fuck up yeah. second.
3: Yeah. Wow. Hey, Bob, was, why, that, why am I thinking of Colgate? Does he, did your dad go there or something? Did you go yeah, there?
1: Yeah. My dad went to Colgate and I, it, yeah, I started okay. going to Colgate football games when I was four or five years old. And that's um, right. So I've been to over a yeah. hundred Colgate football My dad was, um, a, a a very good football player at Colgate. And so my love, my col, my love of Colgate. In fact, he, he got drafted by the New York giants and New York Titans. He was, um, the Titans. Wow. Yeah. And then in the 1956 or 57, he was very had a very famous game which he was, had played. Poor man had to play against Jim Brown four times. My my father oh, wow. played, and he <laughs> he, had a, he had a he had a soft spot on top of his head. Um, oh man! he played all that football with a leather hat on, and uh, you could touch the top of his head, and it kind of felt like touching uh, putting your hand into a cottage cheese container. You know? No way! And, man. and he'd, he'd had wow. his uh, nose broken eleven times. Well, anyways, he got um, he got credited for tackling Jim Brown. Twenty-one times in one game, uh, no way, which was wow. an out- outlandish amount because they used to run that wing T play where Jim Brown <laughs> would come around the corner and the entire uh, the entire Syracuse line, which which um, also featured Ron Luciano, went on to be a famous Major League Baseball umpire. <laughs> so, anyways. They would, they would, they run this wing team. My dad played N. He played offense and defense, so he'd have to play the entire game. And Syracuse is number one in the country. I think they lost the game sixty to six. Well, my dad got <laughs> credited with tackling Jim Brown twenty one times in one game, and I said, "How the hell did you do that, Dad?" You know, he's about my size, a little bigger. Right. He, he's of course way, way fitter. He said, "He said I never tackled him once." I said, "What? Well, what does it mean?" <laughs> I said, "I said, I said, what do you mean?" He said, I never tackled him once. I would take my arms and wrap them around his giant waist and, and he would drag me for four or five wow. yards down the field and, th- and three or four other guys would have to come push him over.
2: <laughs> yeah. so, That's yeah. amazing. Yeah. that's amazing well listen I appreciate all of that insight I wasn't expecting a sports report from uh, many years ago but that was good I appreciate that uh, I want to uh, uh, be mindful of all of our time and uh, conclude by asking of course about the reunion this is a big deal for those of us who love pavement uh, and I'm what do we so. call
1: what do we calling it Steve West the first one you the first tour, Steve West would maybe 50 times a day. He'd like every single time you'd see him in the lobby or at the show or backstage or around the town, or the restaurant. The first thing he would say to you is reunion. <laughs> you and, 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 so you're gonna have to come up with a different tag word this year. I mean, that, I mean, that was that was pretty obvious uh, on the last. What, but it was, it was whatever, <laughs>
2: whatever it's called, whatever this is called, the reanimation, whatever you want to call it, Steve. <laughs> yeah. Steve, why is this happening now?
1: We can't call it admonitions because Endless Boogie already took <laughs> that. There yeah, <Yeah>, you go. <laughs> yeah, and, and I'd
2: have trouble pronouncing it. Apparently, uh, Steve. Uh, <laughs> why, Steve? Why, why, why is this happening
4: right now? I guess Stephen wanted to do it. I mean, that's,
3: it's He finally caved, he right? Fin- well,
4: I don't know. I mean, I didn't talk to him about as it. Botched. He just told me. I went to see him. He said, <laughs> you, know, he said you know, Wes, uh, payment's getting back together. And I said, oh, yeah, I had heard. <laughs> and I'd known for about a month. And oh, I could okay. tell he was upbeat about it, which in 2010, yeah. I didn't get that as much. So I'm really right. excited oh, about good. it. Oh, good. Good. Yeah.
2: Well, that's great. So, when was uh, Bob? When was the last time the band uh, practiced together or convened? Oh,
1: before the 2010, you haven't before started.
2: The... Haven't started yet. For this. I've
1: seen Steve. i see Steve West quite often um, in Virginia. I haven't seen my other bandmates. When I saw Malpuss, when I went out there to do that thing right before COVID started with um, the David Berman tribute thing, yeah, which was amazing. I mean, you want to hear a classic Malpuss story? We I was like, dude, man, we have to like there we have to do like you know, 20 minutes, we gotta do like five songs. Like, yeah. And he I was like, where do we practice? And he's he's like, There's stuff down in the basement. So I go down there and there's like a broken floor, Tom, a snare that's all <laughs> taken apart, no stands, no anything. So so like I'm there for like three days beforehand. I was like, we gotta practice I made the songs, I made a set list for us, we gotta we gotta practice. We practiced for like six like half of each of the songs on we practice for like six minutes. And then, you know, the, so the next night, and I don't play music all the time. I'm not a virtuoso musician <laughs> like he is.
2: Yeah. <laughs> so
1: the next night I find myself at the bunk bar in Portland in front of like 400 people, you know, and we're like, you know, original silver Jews doing this thing. But yeah, no, I, the great thing about these pavement reunion tours is we don't start until May 5th we don't play Barcelona. i guess we'll probably start may 6th we fly out there on may 5th we play barcelona i think on june 2nd just like before the 2010 tour it's a similar amount of rehearsal time and then we we actually have to go to los angeles because there's going to be some sort of like corny production aspect where we're like building some sort of space age shit (laughs) i don't even know how it all works
2: okay Uh, who's
3: masterminding who's masterminding that
1: I don't know. It's all in Botch's hands. You know, there it's, right. it's one yeah. hell of a production, you know, Steven, Steve West and I just basically go out there. We fight, but that's a lot of time. Yeah. Yeah, for yeah. Payment. yeah. That's a lot of time. So if we don't have our shit down from May 6th to May 25th, then, um, then we're in trouble because that's a lot of time for payment to put in for anything. So it's oh, uh, great.
2: Uh, I'm glad that, yeah. the, that's happening. And, uh, I guess it's probably too early to speculate about anything else. Like, obviously we're celebrating this massive release. I would say probably nothing. Is there maybe plans for other releases of any kind? Steve, are you aware of anything? I know it's kind of, maybe Malcolm is his call, but anything else we can look forward to?
4: Not that I know of. I think we'd just get over this mountain. We're the little engine that could We're still going up that mountain. So maybe we'll get to the top.
2: (laughs) What do you think, Bob? Anything beyond uh, playing uh, a bunch of shows?
1: I mean, I look, I think it would be a great idea to even make one song. Yeah. I mean, uh, even if it was like a two and a half minute. Song. I mean, you know, I just think it would be a good idea. I just think it'd be fun for the fans. Yeah. I mean, you know, yeah. but, you know, I don't make these decisions and I never have. Did
2: it ever, did you ever come close to like, uh, even at a sound check and on the last uh, run, I mean, uh, the reunion, uh, as Steve coined it? Uh, <laughs> did you ever, but you know,
1: like songs like um, Seven Nation Army, how that's played in every yeah. high school, yeah. college, and pro sports stadium in the world and like, you know, the Gary Glitter song and stuff. I, I've always thought like, you know, I can't write a song, but if I'm ever going to write a song, I'm going to write like just a completely a song like that. An anthem. A song that gets played. And, yeah. Yeah, Not even an anthem, just like one of those dumb things that catches on for like 20,000 people in arena. Okay. Yeah. And so about, oh, maybe about 12 years ago, I embarked on the process and I came up with a, um, I wrote a song. Boom, boom. And I, there, there's a guy that, um, in, in Des Moines that had a home studio and I went, Spent 45 minutes and we recorded it. we recorded the song. It's called "Bubba Bubba Bad," <laughs> and uh, and it's really corny, but it was really simple and catchy and repetitive and stuff like that. And and so I didn't think much of it, but I was playing it, it for, uh, the year that a few months later um, with John MacArthur outside that Club Auto, which is a really um, interesting uh, club in Dalston in England. It's where it's where Thurston hangs out. It's like all free jazz. Right, right. And it's 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 a good club. And so I'm sitting out there. So I'm outside talking to John MacArthur, playing that song to him, and and. Uh this young lady com- comes up and she's like, what was that? What was that? So now I'm taken aback that somebody actually might have liked the only song I've ever written in my life. Oh, that's good. <laughs> and, uh, eh, and she says, she says, that's amazing. That sounds like cabaret Voltaire, nag, nag, nag. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, that, well, that sounds, sounds good. Amazing. So I'm thinking, this is like, this is like the biggest compliment. I mean, this is insane. So I'm thinking that I'm going to unseat Malcolm's <laughs> and Berman when my, <laughs> songwriting career kicks into high gear. Like every like my worst effort is going to be on the level of nag, nag, nag. And then, Oh, I'd say by the time 2027 happens, I'll be such a big deal. I mean, it's, it's just in my, and I don't even really have to put the time in because those guys, I've never, I mean, I'm sure they put the time in, but you know, you can't, that's a waste of time.
2: Yeah. I, you're time already in. a superstar to me, Bob. Uh, so the world <laughs> has to, the world has to catch up. No, that's very exciting yeah. news. Well, I, no, I,
1: I don't know of any plans. We have no plans, but you never know. I mean, you never know. But you know I mean, That's, I
2: feel like Stephen will just tell you you're making a record, and and you'll be like, okay, if you cool. say so, yeah, and, no. uh, and then you'll, uh, yeah. I, I hope, I hope he takes advantage of this chemical bond that you guys have together, and say, you know, the way you told me the last time we talked about pavement. Bob, where he's like, I got a new one. I got a couple new ones. Let's try them out. I hope that does happen just on a social level. Yeah. I think that would be cool. I'm not trying to be a greedy fan with it. I just think you guys obviously have a magical dynamic that a lot of us uh, appreciate and adore. So, God damn it. I Thank hope, you. I hope, Thank you very uh, much. I do hope that happens. Uh, Jesper, you alluded. I will say oh. this.
1: I'll say that I hope that he plays two polished gigs and Primavera Sound, cause Those because those are long awaited. Yeah. And, uh, you know, if we can leave the stage in Barcelona and Porto feeling good about ourselves, and the rest of it is gravy. Yeah, yeah um, absolutely. I, we do intend, like, I'm, we do intend when we do get on tour in September as a headlining band that, that there will, it's not going to be a greatest hit set. Right. Whereas the Primavera shows pretty much will. Right. That it's, that it's going to be a little bit more adventurous. So, um, oh, nice. you know, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, we're going to, we're gonna to try to entertain our fans. We'll find of, out. Yeah, we'll see. We're gonna we're trying yeah. to try some new things. I mean, Jasper and many other people have said, if you know, have stated that you know, pavement needs to expand their arsenal live. Um, so, <laughs> I think that yeah, we instead of <laughs> in, instead of just the same, you know, playing the same thirty to forty songs that we played. Uh, in 2010, yeah. we need to ex- we need to do to make it more entertaining for the fans. Nice, well, they're paying a lot of. They're not paying eight bucks to go see these bands anymore. They're paying a lot more than that. So we're going to make well, got to keep them happy. Right? I'm sure
2: you'll live up to the to the bargain that you're putting out there. I know you will. And I'm like I say, I really hope to see a show somehow. Uh, even though I live in Edmonton now and I can't uh, access things as readily, but I'm hoping I can go see the band. Yes, uh At the near the top, I think we alluded to endless boogie plans uh, that you have. Is there anything else you want to? share with us about your own uh, work
3: oh not really i'm i'm, I'm kind of like steve when it comes to that i don't i don't want to talk about it too much because i have nothing to say about it you
2: are a lot like steve, just... you are a lot like malchemist it felt like Malcolmus was here <laughs> no, when you not. here no
3: we're <laughs> he's way nicer yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're we're opposites. he's also better you know he he knows how to play guitar no i i no i'm just you know we're just a bunch of old dudes who like to get together and play music and hopefully we get to do that Nice. A little bit more than we have the l- last few years. Nice. But there was one thing I wanted to mention oh. that I think about this reissue and all the other reissues, and in fact, all the other albums. And uh, there's one person that's been involved in every single album that hasn't been mentioned, and mm-hmm. that is the uh, art designer, Marco. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Who, uh, since the very beginning, uh, first time I met him, he was working on the Slamson Enchanted artwork. Hmm. And he he worked with, band on the, with the band on every single release, and he's put together every single one of these reissues. So he's kind of a pivotal part, too. Okay. Yeah. Also, imagine... Very
1: much so. In fact, he contacted me several times... During and I was very thrilled that that you know he was still there and still working um on, with us, yeah. And he contacted me several times to identify people in photos. Yeah, no, um,
3: he's like really. That's skinny. how thorough he is. He's so very, very thorough, know. and he's got an incredible memory. And you know, he's been he's been you know the pivotal guy to put every album artwork together from day. He's on. meticulous.
1: What's yeah. the um? What's the? Uh, in fact, is the original artwork was that. What? Con- how much of that is you, West? The original Terror Twilight*
4: artwork is that? That's none of me. I did the. Uh, okay, because you, you did the box.
1: backdrop. You yeah. did the backdrop. Yeah, I you painted did the backdrop it for to
4: the tour. But- so
1: you mimicked it. You mimicked it for the backdrop. Absolutely. Right. Okay, and then um, uh, Marco, um, if you want to see Marco. The best way to see him is uh a YouTube the um Shaw. What's the name of that Shaw? Oh, Shab- video? video?
3: Break up your band, maybe. Oh or- right, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's Unreal the real is here? one. Unreal
1: or- Yeah, if you want to see the guy that that has done all that um, work for Mat- Matador and Payment, um, check it out because he's the MC in that Shaw. Oh, I've Break seen.
2: Yeah, I watched. Uh, I watched the. Re- he's the
1: tall guy with the. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. I, I, The
1: hair. Yes, yeah, that that is one funny video.
2: Sweeney was on the show a year or two ago, a year ago. I don't remember how years work since the pandemic. I I don't remember when it was, but Sweeney was on. So I was doing some uh, research and uh, and I'd seen that video before of of its time. But yeah, it's a very funny idea for a video. (laughs) So yeah, I I urge people to check it out. Okay, so I want to give everyone a chance. Bob, I feel like you know most of what's going on in terms of socials and websites, I'm guessing, of the three. Maybe maybe Esper knows, too. Where can people go, basically, to learn more about Pavement? Obviously, Matador Records is a wonderful resource to order records and learn about stuff, but where would you like people to go to follow Pavement, Bob?
1: I mean, you know, uh, it's quite interesting. At some point in the last year, the drummer for the Jicks, who was always a Pavement fan and still is, a gentleman named Jake Morris. He's in charge... Um, he's been placed in charge of payment social media. So as far as I know, he's doing all the content and doing everything for the Facebook page, which is at payment the rock band. And then we have an official Twitter account. And then, um, I was talking to these uh, really nice Indonesians last night and they're, they thought that I was doing the payment Instagram and I've never seen it. Um, oh, so that's, okay. that's Jake. So Jake is doing that and, and, it impressed them, so you must be doing a good job. So yeah, uh, that's um, we're on Instagram, Facebook, and I guess if you do, obviously you've put in pavement, it's hard to find, but everything should be pavement. The rock band, pavement. Or, the rock band, okay. Pavement official or something like that.
2: Nice. Well, listen, I uh, I appreciate this. Normally, what I do at this point is I ask my guests if we can go out on a song from the release we're talking about. Uh as we're speaking gentlemen this uh reissue is coming out in uh, uh later this week uh April 8th and so I wonder can someone I- I'm going to throw this to Steve to pick the song and then uh, uh Steve as you know when I have groups of people I think as you know when I have groups of people I offer everyone a veto vote so whatever you choose, Jesper, Bob, can say, nope, don't like it. Yeah. Pick
1: us. You got pick pick to pick a song by it pavement. You got to pick a song by pavement. It has to be from the Terror <laughs> yeah.
2: Twilight reissue is my is yeah. my is what I'm trying to say. Steve, if you could pick one song for us to go out on, uh, yeah. can you do so? And, and then maybe tell us what yeah. you thought of it.
4: Yes, yeah, the porpoise and the hand grenade. It just makes me laugh, and um, I love hearing it.
2: Cool. So, okay. I'm cool
4: with good. that. No veto. Yeah
2: no veto yes
4: you're welcome to make all
1: the set list um this year
3: too steve <laughs> <laughs> No, that's oh, happy not not it. It. <laughs> i just i just want to make people aware of the fact that there are two versions of it oh yes that's true that's appear on this recording so there's the one from uh the sonic youth space and then there's the official one that was used for b-side steve, so go with the
1: official one
2: we want to go with the official yeah, okay, okay.
3: This is yeah, a- official. Okay. I don't want to be- have
1: anything to do with Sonic Youth in any way.
2: Hey, come on. There I'm, just Fine I I'm just kidding. Find people. Find <laughs> people with kidding. a state-of-the-art <laughs> studio. a great bass player. Yeah, I'm, great, great- I'm being great- very sarcastic. <laughs> <laughs> at, um,
1: I mean, I've always enjoyed Thurston. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
2: <laughs> I will tell you, I was telling Lee, uh, Ronaldo, I was texting Lee that I was going to talk to you, Bob, and he said, I love Bob, so come on. Give the guy a break. He loves you. All I-
1: right. Okay, I love
2: him, too. Okay, good, good. Porpoise and the Hand Grenade by Pavement from the excellent new collection, Terror Twilight, Farewell Horizontal, which is available April 8th on Matador Records. Jesper, Bob, Steve, thank you so much for joining me for this wonderful talk. I thought it was wonderful. I hope you enjoyed yourselves, and I wish you the best of luck in the future.
1: Yeah, thank you, Vish. Thank you, baby. Yeah, thanks, Vish. Have a great day, and thanks thanks for thinking of us.
3: Thank you.
0: Patterns divergent, we don't raise the flag For the sake of a volleyball, pizzas and rag. But you'll never try, you'll never collide. We're wanting the piece of the shaking you try There's a pattern of the marketplace. See the value of what you never had There's a pattern in the target face See the link of life when they flounder There's a porpoise in the hand grenade There's divergent ways to make me love you There's an armature in endermas There's a span of life that you should from above, shaking the trees, shaking my love, <laughs> my happy mind, see that it's mine, my everything that's all the high that were wrong, but there's a matter that we'd like to share, with all who are concerned about progress, it's never gonna get to me, cause am Chains
4: That's greenlight.com slash ACAST.
2: Not going to lie, I was very excited about this one. I love pavement. I love talking to Bob and Steve, and it was nice to meet Jesper. Thanks again to all of them for being on this, the 677th episode of Creative Control, which is part of the Entertainment One Podcast Network and is available wherever you get your podcasts. If you can't find an episode that you've you heard about and you're looking for it and you don't know where it is, or if you want to learn more about me, sign up for my monthly newsletter. Please visit my website, vishkana.com. You can like Creative Control on uh, Facebook if you like. You can follow the show on Twitter, at vishcreative. Or you can follow me directly on Twitter and on Instagram, at vishkana. Also, please visit patreon.com slash Control to make a flexible monthly donation to sustain this podcast six dollars or more a month american six dollars american or more a month i should say grants you access to exclusive content uh that you you won't get anywhere else that some of that's derived from my uh, personal audio interview archives some of that uh comes from and maybe some video archive stuff i really gotta dig into that stuff i just discovered a bunch of stuff and i don't know what to do with it so maybe i'll put it there Anyway, there's that stuff, and then sometimes uh, when there's time, and there wasn't for this pavement episode, when there's time at the end, I try to go into a little bit of OT with the guest and uh, ask them some questions. Uh, Anyway, all that bonus stuff is available on the Patreon there, and uh, $6 American or more a month grants you access to that content. Uh, but you can uh, p- uh, pledge whatever you want. It's uh, monthly uh, donations. It's flexible. You can change things. You can People often increase their donations. Sometimes they lower them, depending on what's going on in their lives, I guess. Or how much they think the thing is worth. I don't know. The thing is, you know, the regular podcast, ostensibly done for free. A little bit of dirty advertising money comes in, but not a whole lot. So the real core thing is this Patreon. So if you like the show generally and you want to support it in some way and see it keep going... Go to patreon.com slash creative control. Donate whatever you can per month. Cancel anytime you want or, or adjust it anytime you want. Uh, some t shirts still left. If you want one, message me on Patreon and I'll get you one uh, while supplies last. Okay? Thank you. Thanks again to the fine Alberta record retailer Blackbird Music, which you can learn more about and place special orders uh, from there at their website, blackbird.ca. Also want to thank Pizza Trocadero, the bookshelf, and Planet Bean Coffee in Guelph, Ontario and Granddad's Donuts in Hamilton, Ontario, for their in-kind support for this show. Thanks, as always, to my friend Jim Guthrie for letting me use some music of his on the program. you learn more about Jim at jimguthrie.org. And finally, thank you so much for listening to this episode with uh, members of Pavement and, and Jesper Eklo from Endless Boogie. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, there's other Pavement-related content in the back catalog of this show, so please go suss that out. And consider subscribing to the podcast, telling your friends about the show, spreading the word about it, All that stuff really helps and means a lot. So thank you. I will talk to you soon. Bye for now.